You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, if you're new with us, welcome. We're going through a series called Jesus, which is really my excuse to talk about Jesus for the summer. And I'm just picking random verses that I find uh, compelling, interesting, that give us an insight into Jesus, who he is, and what he taught. And this morning, as uh, Brian just read, we're in Mark chapter 4. And in Mark chapter 4, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, in his infinite wisdom, chooses earthy, everyday items to talk about the most important truths in the entire world. What can we learn this morning from some seed and some soil? Well, we can learn the most significant things there are to learn. And as you read the Gospels, you'll see Jesus often tells stories using seeds, soil, farmers, candles, widows. It's because Jesus is a storyteller. Most of his teachings were stories, or what he would call parables. In fact, in Mark 4, we get our first in-depth look at Jesus' teaching, and Mark 4 is mostly or almost entirely made up of these stories, of these parables. Mark says at Mark 4.34 that Jesus does not say anything to them without using a parable, without using a story. He's always telling stories. And funnily enough, the topic of his story this morning is how you hear what he's going to teach. The topic is how you hear his teaching, which is very meta, isn't it? I can like imagine some guy in his mom's basement, stoned, watching our live stream, saying like, whoa, bro, that is far out. He's teaching on how we hear his teaching. You know what I mean? If you're watching, we're really glad you're here watching. Come join us. Uh, you can come high if you want. We would encourage you not to. Uh, but th- this is really like, it's kind of crazy, like a teaching on how you hear his teaching. And what he's essentially saying in Mark 4 is anybody can hear Jesus, but not everyone listens to Jesus. And the problem is not with Jesus' communication. The problem is with the hearer's hearts. You can understand what he's saying. You can understand his language, his diction, his words. You can hear him, but not be hearing him. I remember growing up in high school, like many of you, my parents... My, my friends, my teachers all told me it's important to try hard in high school, which almost all of you did because half of you have doctorates and PhDs, and okay, you tried hard in high school, you listened. I knew I was supposed to try hard in high school, but when I was in you know, junior French class studying vocab words that I'll never use again, I think the only French thing I know at this time is je joue basket, which means I play basketball. That's literally all I got in French. So if I'm ever in France and I have to play basketball, I'm set, but everything else, I'm screwed. And I remember studying French in French class in high school, and I was much more interested in my TI-83 calculator than I was my French vocab words. I was spelling inappropriate words upside down, you know, like, I, I, was, I was playing games. You, you know, I mean, I was lost pretty much in high school, so I was just not interested in French at all. And I got a D. Makes sense. Uh, I really feel like I would have done well in high school if I tried. I knew you're supposed to try. But it wasn't until I got a letter in the mail from the University of Maryland College Park that said waitlisted to the spring semester that I really understood you're supposed to try hard in high school. Like, I knew you're supposed to try hard, but I wasn't really knowing. I heard, but I wasn't listening. And it took me some time to really understand, to really listen. And really, the point here is be careful how you're hearing. You may be here every single Sunday. You may be amening, clapping, singing, hearing, but not really listening. Don't just be hearers of the word, Jesus says. Be doers, essentially. And there are three types of people spiritually, we'll see. that There are people who are truly listening to Jesus, and it's bearing fruit in their life and the lives of those around them. There are those who are uninterested in hearing Jesus at all, just completely flat-out reject him, an atheist or somebody who's not following Jesus in any way and knows it. And then this third category, there are those who think they're hearing, but they're not actually hearing, 
like I was in French class in high school. And as we look at this very important section, I hope that this text gives you some clarity as to how you're hearing Jesus, the storyteller. You go to verse 1, the text begins, and it tells us that Jesus began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd is gathered around him, and he gets in a boat, and he's being, beginning to teach from the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's no word in the Hebrew for lake, so they call it the Sea of Galilee. It's really more of a lake. And the reason he's teaching from a lake is because, you know, you can hear better across water. So there's no microphones back then like we have. So he's just, this crowd is assembled. I, the way I imagine is, you know, the, the Canton Waterfront Park over here with the glass, I mean, the grass and, and the water out there, just a beautiful area. Just imagine if we had church this morning, me and the boat, I, I would, I'm not going to get in the harbor, but you get the idea. Uh, <laughs> And there, there's, there's, all of you are gathered around this grassy area just listening to the word being taught. You can imagine the, the salt in the air and the wind blowing slightly and the masses are taking up this entire shore and Jesus is teaching a story from this boat. And you're hearing him, but are you really hearing him? And w- one thing we can pick up right away as we go through this, is we should not confuse a crowd with disciples. Because you can build a crowd with a lot of different things. We can get Jacob to sing and we'll build a crowd. I mean, this guy has an incredible voice, right? You can get a good speaker like Pastor Wilson and we can get a crowd assembled by the Inner Harbor. We can grow a crowd by giving people a sense of community. But just because a crowd is assembled like it is in Mark 4 doesn't mean a true healthy church is present. A lot of people assume a church is vibrant and healthy and thriving simply because a large gathering is assembled on a Sunday morning. But the crowd that is gathered here on this morning in Mark 4 didn't prove very fruitful. Most of them would later cheer on Jesus' crucifixion and abandon him. The entire crowd who's coming to hear Jesus teach scatters almost, and very few disciples are actually committed and left after the teaching. And what we learn here is Jesus is not ultimately interested in building a crowd. He's interested in building a church. So how does he do that? Well, he teaches. Verse 2, he teaches them many things. The only way you build a true church is through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Preaching God's Word is what separates the church from the crowd. Why? Because when you hear the Word of God taught and you struggle over this text that commands you to do what you would not naturally do, that's the moment you decide, am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to follow myself? And what Jesus teaches breaks up this crowd and what remains will be his true church. Those who aren't willing to follow his teaching will have just come for the show and leave, but his disciples will remain and seek greater understanding then they will understand, and ultimately they will obey. And how is he teaching? And verse 2 tells us that he's teaching in parables. What is a parable? It's a story. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, one commentator says. And Jesus used these parables to discern the crowd from the church, and they served two purposes. They, they provide instructions to the insiders, those who will drop everything and follow him, And they provide judgment to the outsiders. Outsiders don't understand Jesus' parables and are offended by them, so then they leave. Parables, what they do is they weed out the crowd and they keep the church. Parables are interesting because they not only reveal a spiritual truth, but they also demand a personal response, a personal decision. And the decision that you make after hearing the parable determines whether you're on the inside in the church or on the outside in the crowd that scatters away. Those who press in and seek to really understand what Jesus is saying in this parable and obey it are the ones who have ears to hear. And those who are confused and offended or indifferent, they walk away and they don't have ears to hear. Which are you? And the first thing Jesus says in his teaching is what? In the middle of verse 2, he says, listen. Listen. This is really the main point again. Listen. 
How you listen is going to determine everything. This theme of listening actually bookends Mark 4, because in verse 3, Jesus says, listen, and then in verse 9, he says, he who has ears, let him hear, and he says it all throughout the gospel of Mark, and this word listen is actually used 14 times in Mark 4. And Jesus thinks how you listen is really, really important. So he tells a parable to emphasize the importance of listening. And in the parable, he's going to describe four different ways people listen or people hear. He says in the middle of verse 3, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And actually, uh, this past May, I believe, I got to go to the Galilean hillside and see farmers sow uh, seed. And the way that in the time of Jesus, people farmed, as Jesus is describing here, is the farmer would take a bunch of seed and just scatter it everywhere without plowing any ground. He doesn't do it like farmers in America, you know, where you get a machine and you bring a hole and you plant it and cover it and put water in it. They just throw seed everywhere. And some of the seed had not been prepared to receive it, or some of the soil had not been prepared to receive the seed, and some had. And so we see the same seed sown all over different types of field, and different things happened to the same seed. Verse 4, as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. So the sower is, again, throwing seed everywhere, all different types of soil. Some of the seed falls on the path, which is like our version of a sidewalk. And it can't grow, obviously, because seeds don't tend to grow on sidewalks. And a bird comes and snatches it and takes away the seed, and nothing grows, right? Verse 5, another uh, soil, other seed fell on rocky ground where it does not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Now, this one ten starts out more promising, right? It has a little bit of growth, we see a little spurt, but because of the rockiness of the soil, the seed can't grow roots, and it withers away again. Uh, verse 7, third type of seed, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Here again, the plant, the seed, begins to grow a little bit, uh, but as a Galilean farmer told me that the thorns steal away the nutrients that the seed needs to survive and it chokes away the seed and it dies and doesn't grow. And then verse 8, finally, the good soil, the soil you and I want to be. Jesus says, other seeds fell into the good soil, produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. What the heck does this mean? That tends to be a normal question when Jesus tells a story. Confusion. That's why Jesus says in verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a phrase Jesus often uses in the Gospels. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what he's saying is he's challenging you. He's calling you to make a decision. He knows what, you don't understand it right away. He knows this is going to take some effort and some teaching to understand. But if you want to listen, if you want to understand, you're invited to come and hear. Come and understand. And this is something that you should ask yourself right now as you're hearing this talk. Am I here to be entertained and given a, a quick spiritual pick-me-up, put in minimal effort, be spoon-fed and run on my way? Or am I here to put in work, dive into the Word, understand, ask God to give me understanding and submit my life to what is taught? You see... Jesus is never begging for followers. He's a king. He's not a magician. You will never see Jesus begging for followers. He says, if you want to hear, come here. If not, have your way. He's not here to entertain you. He's here to offer you a new life. And if you're willing to humble yourself, listen and put in the effort to understand, And you're going to see in a second that Jesus' disciples are no smarter than the rest of the crowd. They're no holier than the rest of the crowd. They didn't understand the parable e either. That's why they asked, like, hey, Jesus, what the heck does that mean later on? But they're different than the crowd. They're different than the outsiders in that they're willing to put in the effort to really understand. They have ears to hear, as Jesus would say. And so when they're stumped by the parable, they don't dismiss it or leave or indifferent to it. They go to the storyteller so they can understand. The decisive difference between the crowd and the disciples is that the disciples are not indifferent to the teachings of Jesus, especially the hard teachings of Jesus. And 
It is very common in our culture to be respectful of Jesus, but indifferent to Jesus. And the worst thing you can be is indifferent. This is why in Revelation 3, Jesus says, I wish you were hot or cold. You hated me or you love me. I, what I hate is that you're indifferent to me. If you're here this morning, here's how you can tell what uh, indifference looks like in our culture. If you would say, like most people in our culture, that Jesus is an incredible man, a godly teacher or a person, uh, time, you know, A.D., B.C., time is centered around his life, so he's obviously a good guy. If you would say that but aren't following him in every area of life, I would challenge you that you don't have ears to hear, that you're actually indifferent to him. Because if you actually listen to what Jesus said, you really only have two options. You can either fall on your, your face and obey everything he says or be offended and call him a bigot. Why? Because Jesus, if you actually listen to what he says, he says very offensive things. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, the audacity of that statement. No one can come to God except through me. He calls himself, I am. He's equating himself with the God of the Old Testament. He, he, he forgives sins. Your sins are forgiven this morning, he said, or today, he says. I mean, the audacity to say, if you want to avoid hell, you've got to come to me. If Jesus is not actually God, do you realize the arrogance and evil of saying something like that? So either <laughs> Jesus is, is the biggest liar in history and not God, not worthy of us following him, and he's duped millions, and we should pack up, go home, close this church, and do our own thing, and hate this man forever... Or he really is God, he really is the only way to the Father, and we throw everything we have at his feet and say, command me. There is no middle ground. But yet, almost everyone in our society has chosen a middle option that makes zero sense. He's a good guy. I'm just not going to follow him, even though he says I have to go to him to avoid hell. What we cannot do, what makes zero sense is to be indifferent to hear him, to read this story and go on our way. He, he either is not God, he is a liar, and he is to be rejected completely as a bigot, or he is God and he should be wholly worshipped and followed and surrendered to. Philip Moore says, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And these parables, what they're doing is they're helping us discern, where are we? Are we hot for him? Are we cold for him? Are we indifferent to him? And the worst thing to be is indifferent. How's your hearing? Do you have ears to hear what he's saying today? The disciples did, and so they asked Jesus, what the heck does this mean? Verse 10, when Jesus was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is going to tell us is that there's, there's a dual purpose to this parable and every parable, instruction and judgment. Every parable has a dual purpose of instruction and judgment. First, instruction. On the one hand, the insiders willing to listen, to hear, to press in, to put in effort, are given more instruction, and they're, they're given, as what Jesus says here in verse 11, they're given the secret to the kingdom of God. What is the secret to the mystery of the kingdom of God? In short, the secret is Jesus Christ himself. It's that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It's no secret that Messiah would come. What was a secret, or what was a mystery, was what kind of Messiah he would be. And every Jew assumed that the Messiah would be a conquering king who would destroy Rome and give them autonomy. Instead, this Messiah came as a living sacrifice to live the life we could not live perfectly and die the death we deserved at Calvary. And this parable is really an instruction, receive Jesus as a gift, take his perfect life, take his substitutionary sacrifice and be made free. And those who do not receive the secret of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ, they are outside the kingdom. Those who are receiving it are in the inside. 
And what he's, again, Jesus is unraveling more and more insight into who he is and what his mission is. That's one of the purposes of the parables, to give us instruction of the kingdom of God. And the other purpose is judgment. Jesus says in the next sentence, verse 11, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Verse 12, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting actually Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah 6 God uh, forgives Isaiah of his sin, and God says, who's going to go for us? Who's going to share this message of salvation for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I love that verse. I actually have a tattooed on my arm. I'm, I'm a church planner, so I have tattoos. And this is a great verse, right? It's, it's the kind of verse, here I am, send me. It's the verse you get tattooed on your arm. It's the verse you preach at missions conferences. Until you read the rest of Isaiah, and Isaiah asks God, who's going to listen to what I preach? And God's like, ah, oh, no one. How many converts am I going to have? Zero. How big is my church going to be? One, you. They're all going to reject you. And so Isaiah's like, why would I even go then? Judgment. Jesus is saying, not much has changed since Isaiah's day. I've come to my own, and my own have not received me. And because I'm preaching, and they are not responding, they are without excuse. And so if you hear the gospel and you turn away from it, it's no one else's fault but your own. You were given the opportunity to receive Christ. And this is why Jesus says the parables disturb outsiders. They disturb those in the crowd or those outside the kingdom. Why? Because they demand a decision. Who is this Jesus? Is he really the Messiah? Will you surrender every fiber of your being unto him? And if you respond by not, you have no excuse because you heard the message. And those who hear it and understand and, and believe respond with great joy and say, teach me more, I want more. But those who reject him, those who have you know, much bigger priorities than God, Jesus says additional light will not come, you have no excuse, and you will remain outside the kingdom. Yeah, the parables are fun, they're interesting to read, but there's also a gravity to them. There's a heaviness to them. There's a judgment attached to them. And the good news for us this morning is that outsiders can become insiders in the kingdom only needing ears to hear. A holy curiosity is all you need this morning. Now, there are a lot of really good commentaries on this parable. My second favorite is by uh, um, my good friend, Dr. Tony Morita. My favorite commentary, though, is, on, uh, is by Jesus Christ. Because <laughs> he actually gives us a commentary. He actually explains what this parable means. Verse 13. He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? Let me explain it to you. Verse 14. The sower sows the word. So Jesus, what he's saying is, I'm the sower. And in a secondary sense, the sower is anyone who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. That salvation is through Christ alone. In faith, faith alone, by grace alone. The seed being sown, again, is the gospel. If you place your faith in Christ, surrender to him, you will be saved this very moment. And Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God, through the preaching of the gospel, is going to break into this world like a seed being sown by a farmer. And the message of the parable for the Christian is clear. We must sow the seed of the gospel so that others might hear it and respond to it. It's going to fall in many different types of places, and the responses will vary, but that is not our ultimate concern. Our assignment is to sow and to sow generously, even lavishly, and God is responsible for the seed's growth and the harvest that's to come. That's, if you're a Christian this morning, that's one of my questions to you. Jesus has commissioned us to sow as many seeds as possible and wherever he has placed us. Are you sowing the seed of the gospel at your work, in your neighborhood, at your favorite restaurant, at the gym, at the basketball court, to your kids, with your wife, with your husband? And I, I, I fear that us sowing the seed of the gospel is actually something we, we really need to grow in as a church. I see, we have a ton of lost people, unbelievers, coming to our church. Sometimes it's because someone invited them, but a lot of times it's because they found us on Google. And it convicts me as a leader that the most generous sower of our church is an algorithm. 
God's people should be out in the fields that are white under harvest, just throwing seed of the gospel and inviting them to know God's people and know the, the, the God of his people. Are we sowing seed? And so the sower is sowing seed lavishly, and there are four categories of soil that the seed lands in. These so, the soil represents the hearts of the people that receive this seed of the gospel. Those who hear the gospel all receive the very same seed, the same gospel, the same word. But what happens next with the seed depends on the soil, on the heart of the listener. And all respond differently. And what we find, Jesus tells us there are three types of bad soil where a seed does not grow and one type of good heart, good soil where the seed grows and produces a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. The first soil is the hard soil, verse 14, which I would label the resistant heart. Verse 15, and, those, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. I mean, just like there are, are today in the first century, there were paths for people to walk on. And inevitably, when a farmer was just throwing seed everywhere, some would land on a hard path on a sidewalk. And you're not going to grow a crop on a sidewalk. It's like sowing on concrete. And so this hard soil represents someone who's hard whose heart is hard and indifferent to the gospel. The Bible is preached. The Bible study goes on. The person reads a verse or two, and there's no activity in their heart. And I think there, there are a plethora of reasons that someone might be hard or resistant to the gospel. Here are three major ones. I think many people are resistant to the gospel because the Bible is uninteresting, they would say. And this is me for most of high school. I mean, is there anything more boring than a sermon? Don't answer that question. There's a novelist named Anthony Trollope. He described the preacher as the bore of the age. Don't say amen. I think I heard an amen. <laughs> no, it probably wasn't an amen. It was some, some other noise. But some people, when they hear sermons, they listen like they listen to a telemarketer. You simply endure and just try to get through it. So you can get to lunch. I'm just trying to make my wife happy, man. You hope it ends as quickly as possible and forget it as soon as it's over. Some people need a professional comedian or a world-class TED Talk speaker to keep them engaged in the Bible. Like just us reading it and talking about what it says is not enough for you. I mean, you should, you should stand up here during the sermon sometimes. I mean, people look lost sometimes. They get their nap in. Not, not everything is revealed in one's facial expression, but it's, it's amazing how simply reading the Bible and teaching the Bible can so quickly bore people. If you'd rather have a root canal than hear the Bible taught, then it's very likely that nothing will happen in that kind of heart. It finds the, boring, or the Bible boring. Interesting. Another type of resistance to the Bible, the word, is... is because the Bible is irrelevant. You would say that the Bible is an outdated book for primitive people. Maybe you read the Bible and thought, there's no way God would actually command this for us today. Like, this is so outdated. Like, he, he actually th thinks this for us about marriage. This is actually his command about giving to the local church. This is actually his command about forgiveness. This is actually what he wants out of our lives. This is archaic. The Bible is irrelevant to them, so they resist it. The Bible is preached, and they say, okay, that's ridiculous. And at best, that type of person says, well, I'm glad you believe that. That's good for you. That's a, that's a good truth for you. Third type of resistance is resistance because Christianity is implausible. For some people, hearing the Bible taught is like overhearing someone with a tinfoil hat talking about aliens. What? I mean, this whole gospel message is built on a resurrection from death to life. That makes no sense. A guy was walking on water. We got a world created by God's word. We got virgin births. I mean, come on, this is, this is hokey. This is ridiculous. This is fantasy. And the message of the Bible is so implausible to them that whoever's, uh, whenever it's preached, they're resistant to even listening to it. For some people, they're resistant, so resistant that no, no matter what you say to them, you can give them the best form of every argument, the cosmological argument, every type of apologetic. 
You can tell them about the number of the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. You can show them the archaeologists that used the Bible to make discoveries in, in Israel and around the world. You can tell them about uh, a, a thousand different ways that the Bible is true and the gospel is, uh, is what we need, but nothing seems to work. Maybe you have someone like that in your life. My dad is like that in my life. I remember one time I was talking to my dad about the gospel, and he looked me in the eyes and said, Adam, if you can explain the Trinity to me right now, I'll become a Christian this very moment. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of pressure. And so, (laughs) all right, let me just pull back all the systematic theology I've read. All right, here's what the Trinity is. And he says, not good enough, not going to believe. And the reality is, I could have had God's answer to what the Trinity is. But he's a Muslim. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. His heart is resistant. It's hard. It's implausible to him that God could be three persons in one. It doesn't matter what I say. It's concrete to him. Now, how do you respond to people like that? Well, we should give well-thought-out, articulate answers. First Peter says we should have an answer ready to people with questions about Jesus, about the gospel. But the main problem isn't a head problem, it's a warfare problem. Notice what Jesus says about this kind of heart. The word comes to them, and immediately, as soon as this person hears it, what happens? Satan snatches it. He takes away the word that is trying to be planted in their heart. And you need to realize that reading the Bible, listening to sermons, studying the Bible, is spiritual warfare that Satan is trying to manipulate and snatch from you. Satan is on the prowl, trying, at this very moment, he is trying to distract you from what is being said. He's trying to block your heart from receiving the word. There's no coincidences on Sunday morning. There's a reason that your phone rings at the most important part of the Bible study. There's a reason your kid starts crying when like, you really need to hear this part of the sermon. It's, there's a reason you suddenly have to go to the bathroom during the sermon, or, or the slides and the microphone stopped working. It's because Satan is... Attacking, trying to snatch our focus from the word. He hates that you're hearing the Bible. He wants your kids to go crazy at 7 a.m. on Sunday morning. So you're like, forget it. Let's not even go this morning. He wants your home drive, uh, your drive home from the service to be full of drama and arguments between your family. So you're not studying and, and, and dwelling and talking about the word that was taught to you. He's trying to snatch. He wants you to come into this room unmoved and completely distracted so the sermon and the preaching and the worship and the prayers are just unmoving to you. And this, it's not just for the listener, it's for the speakers too. Joel, who was leading our worship this morning, last night his son threw up at 2 a.m. in the morning in his bed. So Joel had to clean it, he got no sleep, and here he is this morning leading us in singing the word. I got sick this weekend. Satan wants to snatch our focus. Stuff like this happens all the time because Satan wants the word to do nothing to your heart. He wants to snatch it from you. It's warfare. And this is why listening, according to Jesus, is not passive. It is active. You need to take personal responsibility to press into the Bible even when it's hard. Satan is after you. See, I told you. I told you. I told you. No, no pressure. We love you if you had your phone ring off. I'm just saying, it happens every time. And you have to understand, if you are neutral in your understanding and you're seeking after the word, you will not advance. Neutral things stay what? Neutral. In fact, they often drift backwards. Preaching, what I'm doing right now, it is warfare. Listening, what you're doing right now, it is warfare. And every time, friend, every time you actively listen, telling you, guys, I'm telling you. (laughs) Every time you fight through the ambulances and the phone ringing and the distractions and you listen and apply the sermon You declare war against Satan and his demons. You actively scream out, Jesus is Lord of my life and of the universe. And I declare it by my listening. The kingdom of Christ advances as we listen and obey the word. Ground is gained, seeds take root, and a harvest multiplies. 
So in your own life, fight to not be resistant to the word, but to have ears to hear. Fervently pray before the service on Sunday. God, give me a heart willing to listen before you come into this room on Sunday mornings. Before you go to gospel community, say, God, I, I need your help. I have so many other worries and distractions that are not of heaven. I need your help. And God will illuminate the truth to your heart. Eventually, he will, I promise you. And as you share this seed, this gospel, with resistant unbelievers like my dad, no matter how someone responds, continue to generously cast out seed of of the gospel. And don't be discouraged if it lands on hard soil and a, a bird snatches it up. You are not responsible for the harvest. You're responsible for the sowing. So cast as much seed as you can and pray that God would help it grow. I've seen trees and, and, and flowers bloom on concrete in this city. Literally and metaphorically. Just cast the seed. God can plant a garden in concrete. The first type of soil is hard soil. We see this in verses 14 to 15, the resistant heart. The second type of soil is rocky soil, or what I would call the shallow heart. Look at verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. So right away, we see the rocky soil is more welcoming than the hard sidewalk concrete soil. It actually receives the word with what? With joy. It's excited. There's a great spark. There's great excitement. It's what I would call a firecracker faith. What happens though? Verse 17. And they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately what? They fall away. For this heart, there tends to be, you know, somebody who's generally uh, excited and interested. They're giving, uh, this person comes to faith in Christ and they're giving offerings and showing up at everything, you know, gospel communities, Sunday gatherings, Display Declare, RCC 101. They're serving. I mean, they're they're showing glimpse even of maturity and growth, maybe even leading other Christians in some area. And from above ground, they look healthy, but if you look below ground, they have no roots. What is unseen is unhealthy. And once what comes? Tribulation, trouble persecution, they immediately fall away. As Mark Dever says, they're, they're quickly green and quickly gone. And you may have seen this before at a summer uh, youth camp. A kid gets excited, prays a prayer, but as soon as he gets home, it fizzles out. And this isn't just kids, it happens in adults as well, especially to college students. Maybe you came to faith in college, you made a profession of faith, and suddenly you're surrounded by all these Christians who believed what you believed. And you traded in your four locos and weed for Bible study and ultimate Frisbee. Like, you you changed your life, right? And you really start growing in your faith because you have this great community of other college Christians around you. And, And when you graduate and you enter the real world, though, and there's no more crew, there's no more... Uh, navigators, there's no more college Bible study, there's no more ultimate frisbee and worship nights with your college friends, and all that's left is what? The local church, with all these raggedy different people than me. And community is a lot harder, right? Shocker, not everyone's 21 and has a ton of free time. And church isn't like college ministry anymore, and I miss, you know, I miss youth group. You know, I'd estimate about 90% of the professing Christians I knew in college are not following Jesus right now. Because once Jesus no longer has a social benefit, once Jesus no longer gives you ease in your social life, it's a lot harder to follow him, to stick with him. There's a great revivalist named George Whitfield after the Great Awakening. This is the largest uh, revival in American history. He was asked how many were saved. In the Great Awakening, and Whitfield responded, we'll see. We'll see. You see, Whitfield knew this reality that some get caught up in an experience, but never actually grow deep roots and bear fruit and prove to be disciples. This kind of heart, friend, does not endure, and it forces us to ask some really hard questions. Can I ask them of you right now? 
do you, on your own, really know what you believe? Could you summarize the gospel? Could you summarize the story of the Bible by yourself? Or do you need someone else to do it for you? How rooted are you in your faith? Are you growing personally in your relationship with Jesus, or are you living on the faith of someone else you know? If you're a child, are you living on your parents' faith? If you're a spouse, are you living on your spouse's faith? If you're a member of a church, are you living on someone in your gospel community's faith and just riding the coattails? Are you reliant on one organization or one local church or even one pastor or person for your faith to survive? Honestly, if RCC closed its doors today, more than that, if I left the faith today, or if I had a, I'm, I'm not in a fair or moral failure, but if I had a moral failure, would that rock your faith? And if it would, you have way too much hope in this church or in me. And your roots need to be down deep in Jesus, not me. Whatever I do, regardless, the truth is still the truth. This is why so many people are deconstructing and falling away. It's because their faith isn't in Christ. It's in somebody who proclaimed Christ to them. And at some point, our faith has to detach itself from the person who spoke the gospel to the actual gospel. And final question on this point, could you follow Jesus with any culture group in the world, any location in the world, no matter where it took you, where God took you? If God took you to the Middle East right now, where one of our missionaries, Ben Larson, is, where Christianity is illegal and you can be beaten for being a Christian, would you be following Jesus as much as you are right now? If God took you to Japan, where David and Alyssa Whistle are missionaries for, with, uh, from RCC to plant a church in Japan, and you were one of the less than 1% of people that are Christians in Japan, and you knew no one else that was a Christian except like the 20 people in your church, would you still be following Jesus like you are right now? If God took you to be part of one of our church plants in the city, and you have to set up and tear down every week, and people are looking to you not just to take, but to contribute, do you have the same faith you do right now when it's comfortable? Why is there no depth? Why is there no perseverance? Why don't these people, this soil last? Jesus says persecution, tribulation, the hardship of the Christian life. Many people claim to follow Jesus without realizing that a call to follow Jesus is really a call to die. It's a call to endure trouble and hardship. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Translation, the Christian life is really hard, not easier. And the rocky soil reminds us that for followers of Jesus Christ, tribulation is not some tedious detour. It is the main highway for the Christian disciple. Are you ready? Are your roots down deep? And how you respond to tribulation, to hardship, to scandal, to difficulty reveals the soil that is your heart. I heard a story a couple years ago of a Russian pastor in the Soviet Union during communist Russia. And this was a time when it was very difficult to be a Christian. And during the service one Sunday, very much like this right now, uh, somebody, a terrorist, ran into the, the gathering with a mask on or an AK-47. And he came up to the front and said, everyone who's not a Christian, get out. Everyone who is a Christian, stay right here. It's judgment day. And of course, most of the room scattered and ran. And what was left was the people who claimed to be Christians and were willing to die for it. And the man, the terrorist with the mask, took the mask off. It was the pastor. He said, all right, let's bring in Sunday worship. <laughs> I promise I will never do that to you. <laughs> What's his point, though? His point is everyone can acknowledge Jesus. Most people can but will you do it when the AK-47 is in your face? Would you be here if it literally cost you to be here? And Jesus, because he loves you, is telling you the truth. He's warning you because he loves you. Be on guard against this kind of heart that is not ready to withstand trouble and persecution that, this, that Satan is going to throw at you. 
Our call as Christians is to endure until the end, not to have some flicker of excitement at the beginning. And the older I get in this Christian faith, the less I want to be renowned, the less I want to dance through the marathon. I just want to get to the finish line, man, without doing something stupid. The Christian life is a persevering faith. How do we get these types of roots that are ready to withstand hardship? We don't do anything. We go to the one who can do something. We go to Jesus, the storyteller. He is the one who grows our roots deep. When we see Jesus withstanding the trouble of Calvary for us, we want to withstand trouble and endure for him. When we see him weeping for us, we weep and we endure for him. It is our focus on Jesus that helps us get roots that are as deep as his. And again, this is also why Jesus gives us the local church. So many Christians are orphans, not rooted to other plants. I'm kind of taking this analogy too far. But they don't have a local church. And we need other Christians who will go to the, through the day-to-day grind of life with us, who endure hardships with us, who encourage us, who will stir us up to loving good deeds so that we can persevere to the end. Sometimes my faith isn't strong enough and I need your faith to help me. This is why we do gospel communities. This is why we do life on life. Jesus wants us to be protected against a shallow heart, one that does not have roots that grow deep. And so, as we close on this soil, will you continue to grow even when the shine is gone? Even when your friends at this church move away? Will you stick at this church for 30 years if God calls you to it? And if you are here and you're intending or desiring to go into church leadership, which I hope many of you are, many of you have expressed that, this reminds us of our objective as leaders, that we are desiring to plant oaks, not grass. Grass fades, oaks endure. Don't settle as a Christian leader for getting a bunch of people in a room cheering and applauding because you find that that doesn't last very long. Those people tend to scatter pretty quickly as soon as the next show in town is better. Pour deeply into a few. Disciple a few. Go through foundations with a few because if people have no depth, they will not persevere. We've seen the hard soil, the resistant heart. We've seen the rocky soil, the shallow heart. Thirdly, we see the thorny soil, which is the distracted heart, which I believe is the most dangerous to us in this room. Verse 18, Jesus says, And others are the ones sown among thorns. Again, a Galilean farmer told me that what kills seeds most often is that the thorns and weeds grow alongside it and suck away the nutrients the seed needs. And it goes to the weed or the thorn instead of the seed. And Jesus here, he mentions three thorns that can choke out or or suck away the nutrients of your faith and kill you. They are those who hear the word, verse 19, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfaithful. The first thorn is the cares of the word, of the world, excuse me, which is our biggest threat. I would even argue cares of the world might be more dangerous to us than persecution. Persecution can build your faith. The church in China flourished amidst persecution. When my family abandoned me, I grew in my faith more than I had ever grown before. But the cares of the world will slowly, unknowingly, like carbon monoxide in a garage, choke out your faith. And these usually are not bad things. They're good things turned into God things. They're important things. They're, uh, I got to save up for retirement. I got to pay for my kids' college. I got to turn this paper in and get an A. I got to please my boss. I got to take my kids to their baseball tournament or their ballet recital. I got to plan for this wedding. I got to plan for this trip. I got to respond to this email. I got to check off this to do list. All fine, good things, but good things can do great damage to the heart. The cares of the world can choke you out spiritually. And what do we need to do? We need to slow down. We need to do what we did at the beginning of the service pray the scriptures. We need unhurried, unhindered time with God where His Word feeds our our soil, our souls. We need to turn the phone off. We need to go on a prayer walk. We need to get away like Jesus got away. We need to memorize Scripture so we're ready for the tribulation and persecution that's going to hit us. We need to commit to one local church and do life with those people and stick through the thick and thin with them. We need to let our roots grow deep in the Word. Otherwise, the thorns of the cares of this life will choke us out. 
And this is a real challenge. Jesus, he's again, he's caring for us. He's calling us to do a heart analysis. He's asking you, have the cares of this world distract you from the one thing that really matters forever. Knowing and enjoying him. The second thorn is the deceitfulness of riches. You see this? And notice, it's not the riches that are a problem. There's plenty of rich people in the Bible. It's the deceitfulness or the hope in riches that is the problem. It's what your heart tends to do with money that's the problem. Riches are deceitful because they never give you what you think they'll give you. They tell you they'll give you security. They don't. Riches tell you they'll give you happiness. They won't. What they do is they take your eyes off Christ, the riches of God. They become a functional savior. And when you look to something like money to provide your security and your hope and your joy, when only God can do that, what it will do is it will choke your soul away. This is why Jesus warns that it's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of God than it is for the poor to enter the kingdom of God. Because riches are deceitful. You have more distractions, more temptations. This is why we're commanded to give generously at least 10% to our local church so we can yield ourselves or, or wean ourselves off of our desire for money first for us. And in case Jesus missed anything, he says the third thorn is desire for other things, whatever that may be that's distracting you from knowing and loving God above all things. That could be an Xbox, that can be a husband, that can be a new job, it can be a new car, it can be anything. This is a partial commitment to Jesus, not an ultimate commitment. An impartial commitment to Jesus is really not a commitment at all. And the heart of the issue here is when, you, when your present life becomes more important to you than the life to come, and when your stuff becomes more important to you than your Savior. It's an issue of priorities. A Christian always has their feet on, in the, on the earth and their heart in heaven. And many Christians say, yeah, I'll prioritize God. I'll put him first. I'll join a local church. I'll join in on Christ's mission to reach the lost with the gospel after I get a good education or after I get a good job or after I get married or after I find a nice house and a nice community with some nice people or after I have my children or after my children are teenagers or after my children graduate from college or after I furnish my home with nice things or after I retire and on and on and on. And after all these first, God comes in a distant last. So many of you are so enamored with your residency or your PhD program that you forgot you're supposed to be doing it for him, not just to get through it, for you. The reason you're working so hard is for him. Don't lose sight of the goal, the prize. It's him, not the, the degree, not the, the, being an attending. Matt Chandler says, God doesn't just want to be your first priority. He wants to be the piece of paper that your priorities are written on in which all our priorities are based on. And so Jesus is after our hearts. Beware of these thorns that will choke you out, Christian, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of the world, and any other thing that you treasure above Christ. What is your heart doing with the word? And this leads us to the final heart. We've seen the resistant heart, the shallow heart, the distracted heart, and the final heart is the receptive heart. This is what we're seeking, friends. Good soil the fruitful Christian, the receptive heart. Verse 20, Jesus says, those who are sown on the good soil, the receptive heart, are the ones who hear the word. So the good soil, again, hears the word. This verb here is in the present tense, meaning that this hearing is active and continuous. It never stops. It's not a one-time hearing. It's a lifetime of hearing and hearing and hearing. It's like coming every week to the gathering to hear the word, to hear the word, to hear the word. Waking up every morning, hear the word, hear the word, hear the word. It's not like the crowds hearing and just walking away. It's hearing and listening day by day. And then what do they do? The healthy soil, middle verse 20, they accept it. They accept what's being taught. Unlike the other bad soils, this hearing is active, not passive. They're aggressively pursuing the word, accepting it, allowing it to take root in them. They don't resist the word. They don't let Satan snatch it from them. They don't let tribulation or, or distress or persecution deter them. Worries and wealth and personal desires and other cravings don't distract them. And note the promise that comes for those who hear and accept God's word. Verse 20, they bear fruit 30 times, 60 times, 100 times. 
Those who hear the word and accept it grow fruit. Now, harvest in Galilee typically produce fivefold, maybe tenfold in an incredible year. God says, I will produce in your heart that is receptive to me 30, 60, 100 times what was planted. God promises a massive blessing to you if you will hear and let the word of God, the gospel, take root in your soul. In your soul. Now, what exactly is fruit? I mean, Jesus, uh, the, Paul tells us in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's self-control. I don't think I missed any. You can read Galatians 5, you'll see it. It's really, the fruit is being the kind of person you've always dreamed about being. A glorious person. A person who looks like Jesus. God wants to transform you into a person who's full of fruit like Jesus. And then he wants to use you to plant other seeds that transform others a hundredfold. And I want you to know something really encouraging here. Jesus is after a humble, teachable heart. He's not after a gifted heart. He's not after a smart heart. He's not after a beautiful heart. He says, I'm after a humble heart. Those who receive the word and listen and try and do. If you can humble yourself this morning and receive the word, God will make a harvest come out of your life. And the thing you need most for that to happen is humility and letting God do the heavy lifting. Notice how the fruit happens. The soil does not strain to bear fruit. Jesus, the sower, is the one who gave it to us in the first place. I wasn't asking for it. He gave it to me, and then he's the one who grew it in me. So we let Jesus plant the gospel in our hearts. We let him grow it in our hearts, and he produces the harvest in our hearts. Now, not everyone is going to bear the same number or quality of fruit or the same... Some bear fruit 30-fold, some bear fruit 60-fold, some bear fruit 100-fold. And I would argue the scriptures say those who are faithful and bear more fruit are given more rewards in heaven. But all receive the word and some bear to some degree fruit. And it all comes from how we receive the word. God builds his church to the word and he uses the word to bear fruit in his church, in, his, in the Christians of his church. And there is no category, notice, of a Christian who hears the word and does not bear fruit. Does not produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, goodness. And a failure to produce fruit proves that the seed is really sown in poor soil. We saw Jesus reiterate this last week with Pastor Wilson, John 15. The one who remains in me and I in him will what? Produce fruit. And the one who does not produce fruit is thrown into the fire and burned. A fruitless Christian is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. You can know what is good soil by the fruit that is born from it. And so if you, friend, call yourself a follower of Jesus this morning, but you're not growing more and more into the likeness of Christ, if you're not killing sin, not perfectly, but gradually in your life more and more if God is not using you in the church in this city to display and declare the gospel then you really need to ask yourself this important question has the gospel actually taken root in my heart I'm hearing but am I really hearing and as we close this morning let us be a people who are greedy for the word of God we will we will accept nothing less we don't need a show we don't need trinkets we don't need world-class speakers or songs. We need the word. We are, we are seeking after it. We are grabbing hold of it, and it is producing fruit in life in us. Like a starving better, beggar who has found bread, we grab it with all our might, and we cherish it for the life it brings. And if you're a Christian this morning who's struggling to hunger for the word, Pray now for God to give you good soil, a good heart. He transforms concrete into pastures. Pray God would make you a good listener. Pray he would make you a good reader. Pray he would make you teachable. Pray and he will do. And if you would say you're in the category of one of the first three soils, I want to invite you this morning. Come to Jesus the storyteller. He's inviting you to believe in him. He's telling you a story so you can repent and follow him. He's the one who gives good hearts. Let him change you. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we confess that our hearts naturally, all of us, are hard soil, rocky soil, thorny soil. On our own, we would be hopeless. But Jesus, we give you all the praise that you entered into the mess of this world and you planted the gospel into our lives. This message that you did what we could not and you paid for what we could not. We praise you, God, that our sin is wiped away because of your work on the cross. We praise you, God, that we are completely righteous and perfect in God's eyes because of your work on this earth. And Lord, as we seek to follow you on this world, help us to have ears to hear your word. Help the word to take root in our souls and produce fruit, to produce more salvations in this city, more uh, fruits of the Spirit in this city, more baptisms, more life. May your kingdom break through in Baltimore through the people who are displaying and declaring your gospel, whose hearts are good soil, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.